Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been walking through the book of Mark for the last few weeks, and if you haven't joined us until today, um, never fear. Uh, This is, I think, a book that hopefully you can jump in and see what's going on and get a feel for things. And thus far in the book of Mark, we've seen that in chapter one, Jesus is making claims about who he is. And not just Jesus, but uh, the author, Mark, who we believe is actually recording Peter's reflections and experiences and memories of Jesus in his time on earth. And we see that um, he is alluding to the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament, actually. And he is quoting a couple of verses, one in Isaiah and one in Malachi. And they both talk about not the Messiah coming, but Yahweh coming, God. And it's interesting because Jesus is basically being claimed right at the beginning of the book of Mark to be God. That he's come, he's visiting Israel And we have Jesus uh, being baptized in chapter 1. We have his temptation in the wilderness in chapter 1. Chapter 2 begins a a number of controversies between Jesus and the leaders of Israel. And there's a series of five controversies that happen there. And then it kind of culminates in chapter 3 in what we looked at last week, the Beelzebub controversy. And the leaders of Israel, it says that they came from Jerusalem there at the end of chapter 3. And they have decided their verdict about who Jesus is, is that he works for the bad guys. He wears a black hat, if you like westerns. He's not Yahweh. He's not God. He's not the Messiah. In fact, they say he's Beelzebub, which in the Ancient Jewish thinking was equivalent to saying he's Satan. I mean, they couldn't be any further from the truth. And then it sets off an interesting chapter in chapter 4. It sets off an interesting change of direction, so to speak, in Jesus' ministry, where he now starts to teach in parables. And if you have spent any time in your life in church world, you've probably heard this word parable, and you've probably heard some parables. There's the parable of the good Samaritan. There's the parable of the prodigal son. There's all these parables, and today we're going to consider a a parable. It's called the parable of, of the sower. But what I want to do is, at first, I want to give us a flyover. What's Jesus doing? Why the change? Why talk in parables? Why not speak plainly? Do you like it when preachers speak plainly or confusingly? It's a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> Duh, the answer's 12. I mean, you know, uh, we're in church. The answer's Jesus. Um, If you like plain speaking, you may not have liked what Jesus did. And that's not a reflection of you. I'm not saying, I like plain speaking. I I like it when I understand what the presentator, presentator, presentationer (laughs) is saying. 
See, you all are laughing and you're, not, you're demonstrating you don't always like plain speaking. Now, Jesus, he uses parables and it's not plain the meaning. In fact, we know it's not plain because they ask him to explain it. Okay? In fact, we know it's not plain because Mark chapter 4 has caused scholars, since it was uttered, to sit around and go, what's he doing here? What's going on? Because one of the ideas we bring to the text, one of the ideas that we bring to Jesus is, Jesus is a really nice guy who's going to make everything really clear so everybody can be his friend. And then we come to Mark 4, and he says something like, I speak in parables so that they don't understand and won't repent. That's not nice Jesus, my boyfriend Jesus. That's Jesus is confusing Jesus. So let's jump in. And one of the things I want to do is wrestle with what is it Jesus is doing? Because I think I know why. And it's super important for understanding the parables. It's super important for understanding who Jesus is. It's super important for understanding the rest of the book of Mark, why Jesus is doing this. Are you ready? I don't think you're right. Buckle up, kids. It's going to get fun. All right, here we go. So chapter 4, verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. It's interesting that Mark mentions the sea. Um, He's mentioned it several times by the way. And each time that he mentions the sea, it's around people who are disciples. It's around people he's teaching. And I think that Mark is using this. He's a good artist. He's setting the scene so that you go, oh, this is about discipleship again. This is about following Jesus again. Again, he began to teach beside the sea and a, this is the first time Mark says this, a very large crowd. I mean, it's getting big. A very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land how many times did he say sea and he was teaching them many things in parables parables and in his teaching he said to them listen behold a sower went out to sow And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing the yield and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is before uh, John Deere. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So apparently there were some dudes in the crowd without ears. All right, keep going. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Huh? So that, now he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, 
They may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. What? I thought Jesus wants everybody to turn and be forgiven. Maybe I'm reading this wrong. Let's keep reading. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? (laughs) Don't you love? Uh, Teachers know what that's like, right? Don't you understand this worksheet? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30 fold and 60 fold and a hundred fold. Jesus explains it to us. But I still think I need to explain it to you a little bit. You see, why is he speaking in parables? The part of this passage that most bothers people is when Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 6. They may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. Is that what you hear from preachers today? Is that what you read in churchy books today? Is what Jesus is saying here? What's going on? Why does Jesus say this? Why does he start to begin speaking in parables? And by the way, he tells us right here why he begins to speak in parables. But in order to understand him, what do we need to do? We need to go to Isaiah 6. Now, I'm not going to have you go to Isaiah 6 exactly. I'm going to help you understand Isaiah 6 without you reading Isaiah 6. Does that make sense? You can read it later. Because really, you need to read Isaiah 1 through 6 to understand Isaiah 6. You see, chapter 1 of Isaiah is God judging the people of Israel. He's bringing about a judgment. They have fallen short of God. They are not following his covenant. They are in violation of the covenant. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5 continue God's outpouring of his anger towards the people there's glimmers of hope here and there kind of like when you talk to your kid yeah you won't be grounded forever you know that kind of glimmer of hope the kid's like oh at least not forever maybe till i'm 18 but not forever right maybe till i run away but not forever (laughs) maybe once my parents die but not forever okay there's glimmers of hope but it ain't a lot of hope 
And in this process, God is judging the people Israel. And then there's the song of the vineyard in chapter five of Isaiah. And in the song of the vineyard, God is basically getting the people to render a judgment against themselves. Do you remember how Nathan, the prophet came to David, the king, and he set up this whole scenario. Like there's this one dude and he had like a thousand sheep. And then there's one other dude and he has one little lamb. And the dude with the thousand sheep came and took the dude's one little lamb. Is that right? No, says David. And no, says somebody who's below 10. And it's it's obvious. And David says, no. And then Nathan says, what should be done to that man? He should be killed. And the lamb given back to him. And Nathan says, you're that man. It's really effective. If you haven't tried it in parenting to get your kids to condemn themselves, they tend to open their eyes better than you going, you're just... And that's what God does in chapter 5 of Isaiah. He gets the people to condemn themselves. Where the answer is like, oh man, these are bad, rotten, nasty people. You should get rid of them and get new ones. And God says... good idea. In fact, you're those people. And Isaiah chapter 6 is the call of Isaiah to be the prophet to go to these people and explain to them what's about to happen. And specifically to the king, his name's Ahaz, he's not a good guy. In Isaiah chapter 6, God basically tells Isaiah, you're going to go to Ahaz, and then he says this, They may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. You're going to go to King Ahaz, and he is not going to turn and be forgiven. You're going to go to King Ahaz. You're going to have three kids. I'm going to give them weird names. And they're going to be parables to King Ahaz. So that he could be perceiving, but not understanding. I think what Jesus is doing is similar, if not identical, to what God was doing with Isaiah and Israel earlier. You see, God is saying, I have already pronounced judgment on these people. They had a chance. They had a chance to repent. They had a chance to follow. They had a chance to believe. They had a chance to do what I said. They blew it. And now, judgment. And I think that's what's going on in Mark, the first three chapters. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, says Jesus. Some do, 12, some others, 70. They start to follow Jesus. They start to say, this is the Messiah. They start to follow him. There's crowds that gather. They go, ooh, wow, he does amazing things. Does all sorts of cool stuff. What do you think about him? Not sure, but it's fun, the show. And then the, Israel, the Israelite leaders come and they say, you're not the Messiah, you're Satan. They've rejected him. And at this point, because they've rejected him, Jesus rejects them. And because he's rejected them, he speaks in parables. And the parables operate to sift the people. It's going to sift. It's like a filter. It's going to demonstrate to the people who are listening what is really in their hearts. You see, if you really want to follow Jesus, what the parables are going to do is you're going to try to find an audience with Jesus where you go, 
uh, I heard you talking about soil and sowing. What was that about? And Jesus is going to be like, hey, man, you still don't understand the parables? How are you going to understand more parables? All right, sit down. I'll explain it to you. Since you asked, that demonstrates you want to follow. Since you asked, that demonstrates something in your heart that says, I want what you've got. I want to understand. I want to follow you. But the parables are also going to demonstrate that the vast majority of people, three out of four soils, are not going to follow Jesus, are not going to go and talk to him about it. They're just going to go away going, dude, when he talks, I don't get it. But when he heals people, that's awesome. When we got free lunch, that was the best. But then he talks, and I I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that. In fact, the three soils have often been likened to uh, the, the first soil, is like the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, where the, the seed is sown and it falls and it, it's just snatched away by the birds, by Satan. Those are the ones that just have outright rejected him. The second soil is like the crowds. It gets in not too deep and it doesn't have a deep enough roots. And under the pressure of the prevailing ideologies and beliefs it withers and dies and the third soil is like his family because we saw last week his family thinks he's a kook they're losing face with their neighbors hey your kid jesus is just weird why don't you go take you know get him out of here he's causing troubles and the concerns of how they're perceived and the worries of this world It kills what they were starting to understand. The fourth soil is the disciples, those who are following him. And they, we see that the seed takes root, creates a harvest. You see, these are going to work to demonstrate not only in ancient Israel, what was in the people's heart, what idols they were really following, what they were really most concerned about at their heart level. It's also going to do that for us today. It's going to demonstrate what's most important in our hearts. Anybody dumb enough to have a Facebook account in here? I am. And during political seasons, I just, I want to just shoot my computer. I just want to hurt it. I just want, I know that's not logical. I want, I actually want to go blow up the servers of Facebook. That's what would be probably best to do. Because what happens on Facebook does not stay on Facebook, by the way. And what happens on Facebook is that you get a whole lot of people freaking out about a whole lot of things from vastly different viewpoints. Then you get people arguing, interacting, dialoguing. No, they're fighting. You get people arguing. And one of the things that Facebook, I think, does is it functions like a modern-day parable. You see what's really in people's hearts. 
You see what keeps them awake at night. You see what worries them. You see what they read. You see who they follow. You see who they interact with. You see. That's the main reason why I'm on Facebook. Now I'm going to get all these unfriend requests. (laughs) Actually, you don't even have to request. Just unfriend me. It'll happen. You see what people are most concerned about. If they post pictures of their kid, then that's something that's important to them and their kid. If they post pictures of food, then they're thinking about food. If they post pictures of Donald Trump, they're thinking about Donald. If they post pictures of life in Denmark, they might be thinking about Bernie. If they post arguments about, no, this is the worst politics, and this is the best politics, and no, this is the way, and this is the way. I have friends, all they post is Bible verses. They're the super spiritual ones. All they think about is Jesus. You see, what these parables are going to do is it's going to reveal what is most dear and deep in you. And Jesus starts out by telling us in this first parable, the parable of the sower, not a sower. I'm not a I'm not the sower. Jesus is the sower. And Jesus tells us right off the bat how people respond to him is going to be directly related to the soil of their heart. What is in them already? You see, the seed is the gospel, it's the word. And some of us already are irritated by this metaphor that Jesus has chosen. A seed? Last I checked, nobody goes, bombs away with seed. Why didn't he pick a hammer? The kingdom of God is like a hammer. The kingdom of God is like a sword. The kingdom of God is like a B-1 bomber. Kingdom of God is like the next politician who gets elected. Kingdom of God is like power over. Why does he pick a seed? Now, we live in an agricultural community. Maybe some of you are really fond of seeds. You make a living because of seed. But for the most part, seed? What's the deal with seed? Why does Jesus pick seed? I mean, if you're going to start a movement that's going to change the world, why seed? Why soil? Why start here? You know, it's so interesting. When you sow seed, it's a rather gentle process. I mean, even when you got an enormous, you know, tractor dragging behind it, this enormous... (laughs) planter it's still a rather gentle process of placing that seed in the soil at the right depth and covering it right you don't use a hammer for it you don't use a bomb you sow the seed and then what do you do You wait. 
I mean, there's a handful of things you can do, right? You can tend to the soil. But hopefully you already did that before you put the seed in there because you don't want to disturb the seed. So about all you can do is water, fertilize, and wait. Lots of waiting. And hopefully prayers, right? Oh, Lord, keep the great white combine from the skies away from this field. Oh, Lord, whatever little mystery happens in the soil that causes these things to germinate, may that happen. Oh, Lord, bring enough sunshine. Bring enough rain. Bring it at the right times in the right ways. You're completely and utterly dependent on forces outside of your control. And the whole process is just this gentle sowing. So unlike warfare. So unlike politics. So unlike church. So unlike government. So unlike school. It's sowing. It's waiting. Why did Jesus pick a seed? Why not a hammer? Why not a sword? In fact, when I listen to certain people on the radio or TV, I tend to think that the kingdom of God is coming like a hammer or a sword or a bomb. Let me suggest to you, though, that this seed reveals what's in our hearts. This seed needs to be worked deep down in to us to change us. It has to get deep in us. Every single one of these groups that rejects it, it's about the depth. It's about the roots. One of them, the seed's yanked up before it even has a chance to germinate. The next, it germinates, but the seeds or the roots are so tiny. The next one, it gets a little bit of depth, but then there's other stuff that crowds it out. It reminds me of Galatians chapter 2. Peter and Paul are having an argument because that's what church people do. <laughs> Just kidding. That's in first opinions, I think, or second thoughts. Anyways, they're having an argument. And the argument is about eating with the wrong sort of people. Peter is not eating with Gentiles. Like, he showed up at our church potluck and he ain't sitting with any of us. Because, my goodness, somebody brought a whole plate of bacon. And look at those deviled eggs. Two things that Jews couldn't eat. And Peter's like, you know, I, I can't sit with you guys. I'm going to sit with my kind of folk. So he's sitting with other Jews. And Paul sees this and gets angry. Rightly so. And what does Paul do? Does he say, Peter, racism is not God's will. Racism's wrong. Stop it. Is that what he does? He doesn't do that. He doesn't appeal to Peter's will. Because that would change Peter's behavior, but it would be a mechanical change. 
Moms, dads, you're aware of this with your children. We're aware of mechanical changes when our kids, you know, like let's say you catch your kid and he drops a bomb at home, you know, just says some word and it's like all the air in the house leaves because everybody's like, oh my gosh, he knows that word, right? Not to mention he learned it from dad, but you know, everybody's just freaked out when the kid uses the word. And the mechanical change is this, son, we don't use words like that. Don't do that. That makes God mad. God said, let no unwholesome words come out of your mouth. Your your kid's going to change. They're at least not going to cuss in front of you. Because they got busted. But let's say you want an inward change to happen in junior. You want it to be where they don't swear anywhere because... God says, don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth. And what does Paul do? He doesn't want Peter to just mechanically change. Oh, you're right. I'm taking to school. He wants Peter to eat with Gentiles even when he's not there to nag him. And so Paul goes and he says, Peter, you are not walking in line with the gospel. The gospel, the seed, is not deep enough in you. It is not changing you. Don't you know that Jesus was an alien and a foreigner and we killed him? We destroyed him. Because he was an alien and a foreigner to this world. Shouldn't we welcome and care for aliens and foreigners? He wants Peter to change, but he wants the gospel to change him. You see, religion changes people just as much as gospel changes people. Religion changes people mechanically. Religion changes people by giving you a long list of do's and don'ts and shoulds and shouldn'ts and oughts and ought nots. And religion changes people where they're like, uh, I don't think I'm supposed to wear this to church, so I guess I'll not wear this to church. Oh, this is not appropriate for this location, so I'm not going to act this way. I'm going to behave this way because my religion, God says I should do this. But the gospel changes are organic. Have you gone outside lately? Have you seen the grass greening? Have you seen some of your, your bulbs, their plants emerging have you seen the weeds already starting it's changes from the inside out it's happening and that's what the gospel when the seed gets into you deep and you work it in there deep it changes you from the inside out i mean really what Jesus wants is that you get to a place where the gospel is so worked down deep in you that the roots go so deep in your life that you can trust your instincts because you are radically changed. Could you imagine? Have you experienced that kind of transformation in your life? I mean, to your very core. And if you haven't, 
It's not about, okay, well, once Steve's done blabbing her at me, I'm going to sit down and write a list out about all the things I need to change. Come up with a game plan. Make this work. That's not at all. That's religion. The way to change yourself is to cooperate with the seed of the gospel. To think about Jesus, to think about his work on the cross, to think about his life, to think about what he has done for you, what he is doing for you. To allow that to control your heart, to control your reality. You know, it doesn't go after your will. It goes after your heart. It's like this. Extrinsic faith. Extrinsic faith. E-X-trinsic. Extrinsic faith. It's where you're following, you're serving God for what you can get. Serving God for what he can do for you. Serving God to get stuff. There's all sorts of best-selling books on this in the church today. All sorts of formulas, all sorts of prayer, all sorts of thinking and strategies and ways to make this happen. It might be the biggest single product the church is selling today. But compare that to intrinsic faith. I-N-trinsic This is serving God to get God. We sing songs about this. Blessed be your name. Whether I'm being blessed or not, blessed be your name. Comes from the book of Job. Whether God helps me, protects me, gives me, or whether he doesn't, blessed be his name. You see, are you here? Are you in this for what you can get out of it? Are you here because you want God to bless you, keep you, help you, fix you, fix her, fix him, give me, keep me, protect me? Is that why you're here? Is that why you're doing this Jesus thing? Is that why you're doing this Bible thing? If you are, then you are just serving God to get stuff he can give you. And it makes sense that most of us would want a relationship with God like that because Lord knows we're good capitalists. That's how every relationship in our life works. But Jesus says, this relationship is about grace. And if you will follow me and serve me and work this gospel into your life, you will get me. You will get me. And just think about what you're getting when you get him. Forgiveness of sin. Cleansed of all unrighteousness. Guilty conscience is gone. Your slate is wiped clean. Your name is written in the book of life in heaven. You are a child of God. You are adopted. You are predestined to be made into the image of Christ. You will be glorified one day in heaven. You will be given a new body, spirit body, 
You will dwell forever in the presence of life itself, God. You will be a bit higher than the angels. You will judge angels. You will rule and reign with Christ over the cosmos, over all that God has created. You will be present with the Lord forever. If you get God, you get everything thrown in. If you just get everything, you will miss God. Even if you are using God to get everything. You see, the parables work the same way today. They reveal to us what's in our hearts. What is it you really want? What is it that you really want? Do you want God's stuff or do you want God? The parables still sift, still filter us to this day. And there is a scary warning, not at this parable, but another one here. And I want to hit it just briefly. Jesus says, if you reject me, even the little that you have will be taken from you. Could that possibly be happening to the church in the U.S. today? That our roots are so shallow that what we really want is we want to pull Jesus out of the back pocket as the trump card of life. Be able to just get whatever it is we want. And in the process of that, we're going to lose that too because we're not going deep enough with the gospel in our hearts. How would we do this? Don't be afraid of content. Study the scriptures. Discipline yourself to read. To educate yourself. To learn. To want Christ. To want God. Discipline yourself to be in relationship with people who have the guts to tell you the truth. Even when you don't like it. See, I'm convinced that the American church thinks they've got God figured out. And they've got him in a box. And you can call it denominations. You can call it traditions. You can call it a system. You can call it certain behaviors. But all these things in the American church are becoming idols. That is the idolatry of the Pharisees. They thought they knew what the Messiah would look like. They thought that he would bring a sword. They thought that he'd bring a gun. They thought he would bring a bomb. And instead, he brought a seed. And they missed it. Perhaps that is what's happening to the church today. Perhaps we are missing it because we want Jesus to bring us a 401k, a retirement plan, a nice middle class existence, a comfortable home. Nice kids, a dog, perhaps a cat. A church that's comfortable. And this is the way it should be done. And no other way. Lord forbid that somebody might actually experience the Holy Spirit and he would delay you leaving for a few moments. So you can go to lunch. Heaven forbid that we would run late because God showed up and doggone it, we're Americans, we gotta stay on time. Heaven forbid 
that we wouldn't go out of our comfort zone and build relationships with people, hurting people, folks who we need to speak into our lives because, doggone it, I want to go home now. I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to be there anymore. May I suggest to you the days are coming and perhaps already on upon the church where a sifting is occurring and we will desperately need one another. And if we don't work as family, if we don't bond together, this culture, this world will tear us apart. May we work the seed in our hearts. May it go deep. May these roots take root in us. May we be a community that craves Christ, that follows Jesus, that wants to go deep with him and each other. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would help each of us to take a hard look at ourselves through these parables. What is it that is most driving our life? Do you control us? Do our desires control us? What is the bottom line in our lives? Do we want you for what you can give us or do we want you? Lord, forgive me if I have appealed to the will rather than to the gospel. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to each of us and we would be challenged to desire and to pursue and to follow you above all else. Holy Spirit, make itself. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May the seed take root and may you find Jesus Christ. Amen.